0: Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, we're back in New York City with the SDNY elite crew that you've come to know and told us all about SDNY itself to talk about the potential prosecutions that may still remain in the wake of the Mueller probe. We've been hearing quite a bit from both opponents and friends of the president that the real risk remaining now might come from the SDNY and the investigations that are still open that Bob Mueller handed off. We'd like to try to really unpack those and see what risks there are And to do it, we have three SDNY alums and very distinguished ones at that. First, Mimi Roka again returns to Talking Feds. Everyone knows Mimi is Pace Law's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and a legal analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Thanks for returning, Mimi.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: We have Eli Honig returning to talking feds. He was, again, for many years, an AUSA in the Southern District and also thereafter in the state system and that matter in New Jersey – which uh, matters particularly here because some of the possible prosecutions will be on the state side, maybe New York, maybe New Jersey. So welcome, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Always glad to be with you, Harry. And then finally, Jennifer Rogers, who's at Columbia Law School, but a former longtime uh, AUSA and supervisor in the Southern District as well. Thanks for coming back, Jen. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's dive in. As I said, we've been hearing, but it's never really been unpacked so carefully on television that there are these possible remaining cases that are within Southern District of New York, which we know would be worked very aggressively just from what we know and have learned in this podcast about SDNY. So I'd like to sort of focus on what's out there just take the the opportunity to put it all on the table in one episode so you know we really have a a sense of the different things that are there. Now it's a matter of public record what's out there, but I'm putting it together and sort of itemizing or assessing each one is I think something that I haven't heard done. So I have about four or five specific open prosecutions in the Southern District. That's public knowledge as I say, but I think Uh, the roundtable here can really speak to the particular risks. So we have first either a prosecution or maybe a series of them growing out of the activities of the Trump inaugural committee. So that was, you know, as we've known, just on the cusp of his becoming president. It involves many of his sort of closest friends, but possibly others as well. Mimi, can I pick on you to sort of, you know, lay that out a little and tell us what you see about it? And and Jen and Ellie, come on, you know, in if to the extent you have other thoughts about the Trump inaugural committee investigations. Uh,
1: So what I know about it, I, I know really only from public reporting also. And I think in essence, it's looking at whether there were illegal foreign donations to the inauguration disguised, you know, sort of uh, channeled through non-foreign donors. The different possible charges, there would be campaign finance charges. I suppose there could be possible money laundering charges. But it really gets to trying to track down the real source of donations. Is Is it just who was listed or did they really, you know, was it foreign money passing through domestic donors to look legitimate.
0: Yeah. And by the way, why would we care? You know, obviously, if it's against the law, it's against the law. But is this a sort of a serious one? Uh, you know, what are the sort of institutional values that underlie this prosecution?
1: Well, I think it gets to sort of the heart of all of the campaign finance laws that regulate foreign donations and foreign influence. It's about transparency. It's about knowing who is having an influence, an impact on our political system? And you, know, for, I think, good reason, the founding fathers were very hesitant about foreign influence on our political system. And so the campaign finance laws in general, I mean, not just these laws, but are written to... Try to keep that influence out or if it's going to be there to make it be a known fact so that you don't have right. other people in other countries having the ability to influence, say, the president and, you know, what his foreign <laughs> policy is. Jen is reminding me that the Southern District uh, investigation also deals with spending by the uh, inaugural committee. There seems to have been a lot of unexplained um, you know, where where did all the money go that they did raise and what was it spent on? And, it, you know, sort of absurdly high rates paid for hotel rooms, I think, and things like that. So um, I think there's a lot of – flat
0: out unaccounted for, you know, like a very high uh, – well, decent percentage of what was a very high amount for starters. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me just – I just want to stick with Mimi for one second. So what, what is like – a sort of a worst case scenario here. So, so somebody who we don't know what it was, who's a, who's foreign, has influenced potentially. Wh- what would be the worst thing that the investigation would uncover? You know, it's a it's a country or a person, or what would really uh, be sort of seismic.
1: Well, I think the worst thing, quote unquote, from the from Trump perspective, uh, would be that it's uncovered that. For example, Russia had an outsized influence in uh through mu- financial means uh you mean through Putin donations. Wrote a check? Well not Putin, but Russian oligarchs, you yeah. know, people who are close to Putin that just like they helped Trump get elected through various uh Means of manipulating our electoral system, that they also were able to sort of manipulate the system by donating money in ways that they shouldn't and didn't want people to know because they didn't want them to know that Trump was then beholden to these Russian oligarchs because they were making such donations. And so they disguised them. And from Trump's perspective or the campaign perspective, the worst thing would be if it was found that people within. Trump's orbit knew about this. I mean, obviously, some people probably did, but so who who knew about it, and what's the proof of yeah. that? You know, could they be implicated as sort of um, part of a campaign finance fraud conspiracy type?
0: Okay, well, uh, you know, serving it up to everybody. The refrain you hear often from the Trump camp is, "I mean, besides, it never happened. We never did it. You know, who are you going to believe? Your, you know, me or your eyes?" Is this is small potatoes. It's, you know, for the campaign finance stuff, it's a little regulatory violation. Maybe here, too, we recently with, you know, Trump was talking about foreign donation as, I, yeah, I, I take it what's wrong. This is the way it works in the real world. Is it that kind of case where, you know, in defense, if it's proven, will be, eh, what's the big deal? You guys are, you know, this is really a regulatory crime, or will, you know, is it— understood as a kind of serious offense. If this kind of
2: offense is proven, I do not yeah. th- I do not think it will be even remotely credibly cast as what's the big deal, yeah. right? Because first of all, we're not talking about a gray area here. The whole idea about foreign information and uh, is that of monetary value or not, there's maybe some wiggle room there. But here we're talking about donations, right. cash, checks, money. And I think that the inauguration took in Nine figures, right? Over $100 million. So I think we're talking about significant cash donations. So we're not going to have that what's the big deal type question. It would be the equivalent of if instead of taking these hacked emails, if the campaign just accepted cash through, yeah. through a conduit, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, through. Oh, it's, it's probably going to be through a conduit, I would assume. But look, you have two big ingredients here that lead me to believe something went down. You have an awful lot of money. I think it was almost double the amount that Obama – uh, spent on his 2012 inauguration for by what all, I wasn't there, but by what all accounts was not a super large affair. It was actually a pretty Much less spare, crowded than yeah. Trump's, I gather. And you have a lot of shady figures on the other right. end. I mean, we know Manafort was was there. We know Rick Gates was there who's right. cooperating now. So that's a recipe for
0: potential criminality. All right, let's move on to the next, uh, the, the, the next case that we know is there. And that is, I mean, it's also technically a campaign finance, but the hush money payment. Payments that were covered very uh, I mean that's this is where Michael Cohen comes in in fact, Jen you can if you have a sense of how Cohen is a figure you know overall, but there's a potential investigation of whether Trump specifically was involved personally in the the hush money payments to which th- they were clearly a crime already. Cohen has pleaded guilty. so what sort of out there that were in, that it's being investigated and how Righteous, I might say. You know how how important a prosecution is it, or is it more of a technical violation if proven?
3: Well, this could be a big one in theory. I mean, before the Mueller report came out, and many people us included, started saying that it demonstrated crimes that had been committed by the president, namely obstruction of justice, this was the thing that people were pointing to to say, we know that the president has committed a crime, and we know it because the Southern District of New York told us (laughs) in it's charging (laughs) instrument against Michael Cohen. (laughs) So it's a big deal in theory. We know because of the OLC memo that Southern District will not be trying to get an indictment against the president. But there were other- The
0: OLC memo?
3: The OLC memo that says that a sitting president cannot be Uh, indicted. Um, But we know there are other people involved. So I think most people expected that when the kind of smoke cleared from the Mueller investigation that we would see actions that suggested that other people would be charged in this. I mean, we know that the money came through the Trump Organization. We know that Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, was involved in that. He was given immunity to talk about this. So probably he wouldn't be charged. There was another person who we now know as Don Jr., who also signed some of the checks that basically were the, the funneling of the money through the Trump Organization. So He's theoretically chargeable. And there might be other people on the campaign side or on the Trump Organization side or on the uh, National Enquirer side, right? They're the ones who did the catch and kill for the Karen McDougal affair. And their uh, CEO, David Pecker, was given immunity or a non-pros or some sort of mm-hmm. immunity non-pros- as well. Non-pros,
0: what's a non-pros?
3: Non-prosecution yeah. agreement. The The company, AMI, I believe, was given a non-prosecution agreement saying that they know that they did something wrong, but if they behaved themselves, then they wouldn't get charged. Straight up and fly right, okay. Exactly. So there are, you know, people, who could be charged in this, even excluding the president. The question is, is that going to happen? I feel like if it was going to happen, we may have seen something by now because it seemed like they pretty much had it all wrapped up. You know, we had Cohen charged. They put a lot of witnesses into the grand jury around that. We had Cohen testify publicly. So now I think we know most, at least, of what they know about this incident. So the question is, are they going to charge anyone else or are they not? And, yeah. you know, I'm starting to think that maybe they are not. And, and this is, is kind
0: of a, a, a recurrent theme, cross-cutting in the different investigations. But yeah, you know, there is a sense of the heirs having maybe leaked out of the, the tires. You know, let's say that they do really build a good case and it's all sort of there. It has to go through Department of Justice and Bill Barr, right? Even if it's not about... Trump, so it doesn't run headlong into the OLC memo. It's still gonna be uh, subject to potential pushback at the DOJ level. How do we see that working? Is there a sense in which you know the the main department just says we're not gonna we're not gonna do any of this anymore? That was then, we're finished.
2: Th- that's a real concern for me, especially now that I think we've seen Bill Barr's true colors uh, over the last several months. Any, any criminal charge is going to come out of these payments of hush money are going to be tough calls. It's not going to be like a robbery. Did the person do it or not? Tough You're... calls on the facts and the law, yeah. or on the policy of whether to charge. Well, starting with facts yeah. and the law, it's going to ultimately get come down to knowledge and intent, right? You, we'll some, be... But some, I mean, isn't some of the stuff with, with on the hush payments pretty straightforward? Well, so, some of it is. Here's what's straightforward: mm. money was paid to these people. I mean, they're signed checks. But what makes it tricky mm. is what did this person know about what the reason was? Was it to influence the election, or was it for some other reason, or did they even know what they were signing? The checks for so you're getting. You mean the are,
0: are the argument we're talking about? Well, it was really just done to so Melania wouldn't be hurt. Even you think that's to right. get well, like real purchase.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what the argument would be at trial, right? That it, yeah. it would be the John Edwards defense. These yeah. payments were made to spare the family or the individual embarrassment, not to try to influence the election. I think there's powerful counter arguments here, starting with the timing. These affairs were many years right. ago, and the payments were made right before the election. Yeah. But you're going to get into who knew what, like look at Donald Trump Jr. We know he signed one of the checks. Did he have any idea what this was for or was he just sort of rubber stamping? If you've ever been in a position where you're signing checks for an organization, you don't Mm -hmm. always know what every check is for, every detail of it. And so we're going to get into these intent knowledge questions. And my concern then is you have Bill Barr and you know where he stands. And think about what it's going to take to get Bill Barr to sign off on a charge of Donald Trump Jr. If you have a surveillance tape of Donald Trump Jr. walking into a bank and robbing it, he kind of has no choice, although he'd probably find some way to weasel around it. But here you're talking about inherently, and it's the kind of thing we were talking about on the prior episode or before about Southern District, you have to make tough calls sometimes. And do you have a tape recording of Donald Trump Jr. saying, I'm expert in campaign finance laws, and I understand this to be incorrect? No. But can you put together an argument He's a smart guy. He's a senior member of this campaign. He's been around this campaign for a long time. He he, and others took steps to hide it. So, yes, that's an argument I'd make to a jury that he had the requisite knowledge, that he had the requisite intent. But can an AG come in and say, well, I see it differently. I'm not going to approve this. Sure. And that's a concern to me.
0: Yeah. All right. So and that's a cross-cutting theme here. We've got the inauguration committee stuff. We've got the hush money payments. What about? Uh, there's an investigation afoot. Is there not about um, whether they tried to influence Cohen by dangling a pardon, you know, so to speak? To this comes up with with Cohen. It also maybe comes up with Manafort. That kind of it. it you know, would it again? Would it be a crime? Would it be righteous? And how likely is it to come to fruition, Jen?
3: Yeah, these are tough ones because unlike some of the other obstructive actions that the mm-hmm. Mueller report identified, this one is purely presidential in nature, right? No one else mm-hmm. has the ability to dangle a pardon. And so, you know, it, it's harder to say than it is in some of the other cases Mueller identified that, that this is wrongful, it would apply to anyone, and there's no possible kind of executive power defense to it, right, or a legal theory like that. What
0: what do you mean executive power defense?
3: So Bill Barr believes, um, as do some other extreme thinkers, that the president's Article II powers basically – give him, like anything that that Article 2 allows him to do, he can do absolutely, and can't then get himself into legal trouble for having done it. So if he is allowed to issue a pardon in a criminal matter, it doesn't matter if he does that in order to get himself out of possible criminal legal trouble, because that- The reasons are
0: irrelevant. Is that the notion?
3: Exactly. And so that kind of puts this action in a different bucket than some of the other things that the the Mueller investigation found that he had done. Okay. Um, but if you don't subscribe to that view, then when you look at the facts, at least as, as Mueller and his team uncovered them and you know Southern District is looking into this as is reported, then they're presumably doing their own investigation as well. What you see the president doing in connection with Michael Cohen in plain view, by the way, some of it, not right. all of it does start to look like he's trying to convince him that if he just stays the course and doesn't turn on the president, that he will end up with a pardon and that he can rely on that and that that will, of course... So,
0: so let's say those are the facts that are established. There's a crime. Uh, i leaving aside what you've said is the extreme thing. So how does that equate to a crime, whatever, you know, whatever the elements would be? What, what crime would it be and, and how do you... Show each can, I, can I just interject yeah, one thing
1: before she answers that, because right. I think it's relevant, that there's a second part to the facts of, of this potential crime, which is there's the pardon dangling. There's the, you know, when Cohen's office was raided, the, oh, my God, you know, poor Michael, he's a good man. Then when it does become clear that Cohen has cooperated, the intimidation <laughs> starts. Yeah. I mean, and that a lot of that's in plain sight. And I, I mean, I think all of us probably at various points, um, on our respective, you know, networks have, have likened that to very mob-like tactics of the, the most blatant example was when the night before Cohen was about to testify from before Congress and Trump tweeted basically, watch the father-in-law. You know, watch, right, out, right. you know, it, it was almost like if I had had a, a cooperator about to testify in a trial, and some mob guy came up to him in the hallway and said, you know, yeah. your father-in-law better watch out. I, I would want to charge that as as attempted witness intimidation. Yeah. And there were more examples like that, that, some of which Trump tweeted. There was this whole back channel through someone that I can't remember the name but another Rudy Giuliani connection yeah. Robert uh, Costello, Costello. Uh, there was some Giuliani contact with uh, Cohen so I, I think with Cohen in particular you have to look at both the pardon dangling but then also the flip side once he did cooperate which I view as attempted witness yeah. it's all,
0: I mean it is all part of the sort of good fellas uh, f- feel to this stuff
1: right? and, and
3: Mimi's right that that piece of it has nothing to do with Article 2 powers I mean that that's the sort of thing that we've seen done in cases, and that's obstruction of justice for everybody. So, right. so there are two sides to it. In this yeah. Term.
0: OK. So moving on, I think we have two more that, we, that have been part of public um, reporting. There's the whole stuff with the insurance claims. That's in SDNY, I believe inflated insurance claims for well okay, you're you're shaking your head out. can you give us the, yeah, the so basic skinny this is the kind of thing that
2: Michael Cohen testified about he was right. being examined by uh, representative Ocasio-Cortez right and and i think this one oddly could be the most straightforward to prove because if you can prove that the president inflated his assets, well, either inflated or deflated, right? There's been allegations that he did both, that at times he inflated his assets in order to get bank loans that he wouldn't otherwise be entitled to. And that is garden variety bank fraud saying, I own these five properties. They're each worth $5 million and I own them free and clear when in fact you only own three of them. I'm making this up, but you only own three of them and there's liens on them. I mean, that's what (laughs) bank fraud is. And you can do that almost entirely through documents. Just here's what his actual holdings were, here's what he represented to the bank. So those cases could be fairly straightforward to to make. There's also the scenario where he deflated his assets either for insurance purposes or for tax purposes. It's just the converse of what I just laid out. And so, again, that's a paper-based case. Of course, the the overarching question, though, is, I mean, you cannot charge the president during his term while he's sitting under DOJ policy. Will there be a charge afterwards? That's a more complex uh, question that maybe we'll get to later. But these are sort of really not even super complex financial fraud cases, assuming you're within... The statute of limitations, which is the amount of time you have to charge a crime from when it happens, which almost always is five years, can be a little longer yeah. in some circumstances.
0: Actually, let's go back to the the uh, the idea of charging him later. Let's say SDNY says we agree, we understand the policy, we're not going to try to buck it. but we want to uh, file an indictment and ha- and have it be under seal, you know, until. Twenty twenty. So that's you know, it's not nothing's coming out. There's nothing that Barr has said specifically that makes that verboten. Uh, do they a fight for that that kind of outcome, and b how would it play well, play out?
1: I think Mueller at least has taken the stance that even filing an indictment under seal against the president would be forbidden. He under. has,
0: yeah. a little, But I'm just, and and that's something that you know. Uh, but but Mueller in general has done some. Overprotective measures towards certain defenses, it's not clear are actually required by DOJ policy. I I think the more likely way this would play out would be a charge by
2: the next administration, right? I don't think there's any way that that Barr would sign off on sealed indictments and and Mimi referred to the reporting that's out there. But I think the question will be, will the next attorney general authorize this kind of charge?
0: Okay. I mean, and why
2: wouldn't they? I can give a why they would and why they wouldn't. I think it's a tough call. Why they would is... The president like committed serious crimes and yeah. that needs to be addressed. The why wouldn't they is it would be the ultimate circus, sideshow, distraction, whatever whatever you want to talk about. I mean, assume, let's assume one of the Democratic candidates wins the 2020 election and installs uh-huh. his or her new attorney general. Is that – Not that it's the president's decision, but is that administration going to want the very first thing or one of the first things their administration does to be to indict Donald Trump, the prior president? I mean, imagine the circuit. It would swamp the attention over everything else that this new president was trying to do. Now, whose decision should that be? I don't think it should be the president's decision. I think it should be the new attorney general's decision to make.
0: Uh, But we get into those those walls again. It is a really important general point if and when there's some – Actual prospect of indicting the former president—it's just going to feel very different, as was the case, say, with uh, Nixon and Ford. There's a lot of bloodlust now and outrage, but uh, you know, I think there'll be substantial arguments if it comes to that of like, let's let's just let it pass and 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 you know, go to the there next. Could page. be pardons too. Uh, that too. All right, that's another episode. All right, I think there's one more that uh, is sort of in the SDNY as, as a public matter. And and by the way, one thing to think about is how likely it is that these are going to give rise to new investigations that we don't know about. But we have the lobbying violations. That have been uh, okay. We (laughs) all right. Okay, so I mean, it's sounding like there's a I don't know catch twenty two, but a a kind of uh, hermetic seal against ever indicting any president for any kind of violation. You can't do it while they're in office. OLC memo. You can't do it after you know two crazy hubbub. You know, big distraction. So is the real possibility that. A president, any president is essentially insulated from any kind of criminal prosecution. And is maybe that a a good thing overall or or the sins to be dealt with by impeachment and impeachment alone?
3: Well, one problem, I think, is we've seen the kind of catch 22 that we're in now and how impeachment really, at least in our current time, is not seeming to be the tool that the framers yeah. intended it to be. So, you know, I think it's part of the reason that it's time to revisit this OLC memo. This is kind of a given. This OLC memo means that the president can't be charged while he's sitting. That's certainly the way that the Department of Justice is is telling us it is right now. But when you look at the memo itself, it's actually not right. at all an open and shut case that right. that Should be the case, and it just puts us in such a precarious position. And you know, people talk about OLC like, oh, us the country. Well, once they speak, you know, all you know, all is resolved. But you know, the other day we had an OLC memo explaining to us why it is that Mnuchin is is on solid ground (laughs) and defying a very clearly written statute and not turning over the president's tax return. So OLC doesn't always get it right, and this may be one reason why. Part of what we need is a revisiting of that issue with some legal analysis that, that stands up a little better and think about whether a sitting president should be able to be charged if. They should be given the, the crimes and so on.
0: And absent that, are we in the position where, you know, that's it's just not on the table ever to prosecute a president? I don't think so.
2: I mean, as long as the DOJ policy remains on the books, we will not see a federal charge against a sitting president. But I don't think any of us is saying that a president cannot be charged once he's out of office, whether by impeachment or by election or by just serving two full terms. All I'm saying is that's a very difficult decision. It's a fraught decision. Yeah, it's a decision that has to be made in the real world and in light of policy. Politics and reality. But can that decision be made to indict a president who's just left office? Of course.
0: Well, you said you you seem to underscore, maybe I got this wrong, federal charge. Were you meaning to include, I mean, talk about a can of worms, a state (laughs) charge against a former or current president?
2: Well, there's a separate legal question as to whether a state prosecutor, and likely this would come from a state attorney general in New York, possibly New Jersey, where I worked, Mm -hmm. uh, lawfully indict a sitting president. And we don't know the answer to that. But I guarantee you, the first exhibit to the motion to dismiss the indictment (laughs) will be the OLC memo. So, so the same rationale here. And the rationale for the OLC memo is essentially it would be too disruptive to to have the president trying to run the entire country and the executive branch while under indictment and potentially on trial. And so, I would argue they got it right if I was defending the president. I would say DOJ got it right. This policy that they've had on the books since 1973 is correct. And this brief is why, and it's just as disruptive or perhaps even more disruptive to have your state attorney general, general, which some are elected, some are appointed, and there's not sort of that level of accountability. If you allowed state ASG to to start
0: indicting sitting presidents, it would be a free-for-all. Today's sidebar is, fittingly, an all New York affair. And it's as impressive as Times Square at midnight. Ellie analogized the SDNY-EDNY rivalry to the Yankees-Mets rivalry, with SDNY, of course, playing the overdog Yankees. Well, today's sidebar comes to you from the one and only longtime voice of the Yankees, Michael Kay. Michael has been a household name in the Bronx and all five boroughs for over 25 years with a list of awards to rival the number of Yankee World Championships. It's incredibly generous of him to do today's sidebar since, as every Yankee fan knows, he recently had vocal surgery and is turning down all outside appearances to save his voice for Yankee fans. And now, Talking Feds listeners. Michael's topic today is also as New York as an egg cream it is whether New York State can punish a person twice for the same conduct, which has been a topic of intense interest in the cases of Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort in particular. So in the words of Michael Kay, let's do it.
4: Can New York State prosecute someone following a federal conviction for the same conduct? Sometimes the same conduct, for example, bank fraud, is a crime under state and federal law can a person be convicted twice for the same conduct? Your first thought might be no, of course not. The double jeopardy clause of the Constitution protects against this serial punishment for the same conduct. But it's not that simple. Under the constitutional doctrine of federalism, the states and the federal government are viewed as separate governments. Separate governments can make and enforce their own criminal laws. Thus, The Double Jeopardy Clause doesn't stop a separate government or sovereign from punishing someone for the same conduct as the feds. This is known as the Separate Sovereign's Doctrine. The Supreme Court has long recognized the Separate Sovereign's Doctrine, but this last term, a defendant asked the court to overturn it. The Supreme Court refused and affirmed that the states may prosecute people for the same offense as the feds. But that's not the end of it. Even though the Constitution allows New York to prosecute, New York law has its own double jeopardy protection that sharply limits the separate sovereign's doctrine, so New York may not prosecute someone who was convicted under federal law of the same conduct. But there is yet one more wrinkle. In May, the New York legislature passed an amendment to its amended its double jeopardy law to add an exception. If someone receives a presidential pardon, then they are not protected from prosecution for the conduct. Plainly, this law was aimed at providing a backstop in the event of a perceived abuse of his pardon power by President Trump. Because the law is not retroactive, it does not apply to anyone who has been tried already or, or entered a plea, like former chairman of the Trump campaign, Paul Manafort. Although the law has passed, the governor of New York has yet to sign it into law, so the landscape in New York remains as it was, but with the capability of changing with a stroke of a governor's pen. So, like many things in law, just like in baseball, the answer is sometimes. It may turn out New York will be able to prosecute someone for the same conduct if the governor signs the bill into law after which the person is convicted and receives a presidential pardon. For Talking Feds, I'm Michael K. See you.
0: Thank you very much, Michael K. And again, for your great generosity in doing the sidebar, having recently had vocal surgery. So we've got a few minutes just to talk about these were the things on the public record that hopefully we now put in a package that people can kind of digest. What about the more speculative charges? There's a lot of news about where things might go in state court with the, say, the New York attorney general or the the Manhattan DA, and then just other things that may or may not be pending. Do you have any sense of the kind of add-on investigations and prosecutions that may already be underway or that we may be uh, seeing in the future. Mimi? Mimi
1: So, you know, I have always assumed and thought that the Southern District is used to doing investigations where you start looking at one thing, and as you're looking at one thing, you discover something else. And I had always assumed that as part of the Cohen campaign finance, you know, hush money payments uh, that we talked about, that they would start looking at the Trump organization books and records and everything about the Trump organization and that they would uncover a sort of a wealth of what I assume to be fraud, frankly.
0: Isn't it possible that they have and we don't know it?
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, in terms of speculation, like, I'm assuming that once they start looking at that they will find things that could potentially be crimes and and I'm assuming they've already started that. So the question is are there people, I mean if not the president, are there other people that would be charged? I mean for example, if you want to look for a second at the New York Attorney General has brought this, you know, civil claim about the Trump Foundation and what seems right. to be pretty clear fraud um, regarding use of charitable funds for personal type of expenses. Um, that's slightly separate from the Trump organization, but it sort of all goes into the mix. Is that something that the Southern District of New York could charge criminally? Probably. Um, and so the the question becomes, one, is there someone other than the president for them to charge? And again, two, would Bill Barr ever authorize a prosecution of anyone connected to Trump? And unfortunately, I think all of us sitting here are quite afraid that the answer to that, regardless of what the evidence is, regardless of how serious the charge is, is no, unless it was something, as Ellie said, that is so straightforward that he couldn't possibly say no, like a video of someone committing a crime.
0: But of course, Barr couldn't just, you know, countermand a state indictment, though, as Ellie points out, there could be a lot of, and there would be a lot of legal uh, impediments or heavy-duty arguments to make. Okay, either uh, either Jen or Ellie have a sense of possible things that'll be out there that in, that'll that be in the headlines a year from now, but that right now are proceeding apace under state investigation or federal investigation.
2: So I think the New York State Attorney General is in an interesting position in that she was recently elected, Tish right. James, and, and essentially her platform was, I'm going after this guy. Right. I'm going to get the president. I think at one point she said and everyone who's ever been around him So on the one hand, I think the attorney general will be feeling a lot of political pressure to deliver there. On the other hand, I think it's a really bad look and a problematic look to run for the office of attorney general on the premise of I'm going after this person. I just don't think it's what prosecutors should be about. And also, I think it opens the door if she does indict the president or someone around him to to a selective or vindictive prosecution defense, right? If you can show a court, I was picked out for political reasons, you can get a case dismissed. So I I get that that was an important plank in the platform that got the attorney general elected, but I think it really could come back to to haunt her in that
0: office. Jen, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all that. I think, though, that Trump, his organization, his foundation, and everything else related to him are under such a microscope now from so many different people in offices that if there is something there, we're going to find out about it somehow or other, whether it's criminal charges, civil action – Some sort of action against someone else where they, in the course of that, disclose the wrongdoing that the organization or foundation or family was involved in. So I just think that most of it or all of it is going to come out. I just don't know what the vehicle is going to be and whether there will be criminal charges. Mm -hmm. But enough people are looking at them and all of their entities that uh, we're going to hear about some of this malfeasance at some point, I think.
0: We surely hope. hi harry here we taped this episode a while back and on behalf of mimi jen and ellie i want to add a short addendum in brief nothing of significance has happened with the sdny's various probes in the time since we had this discussion but something of significance has not happened we learned in july that the sdny had essentially concluded its investigation of the campaign finance violations growing out of the payment of hush money by Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, That became clear from a government filing saying that the office no longer objected to the release of documents related to the searches of Cohen's homes and offices, to which it previously had objected because the investigation was ongoing. So that means that the SDNY closes up shop, having charged only Cohen. That's very good news for multiple figures in the Trump orbit, including Donald Trump Jr., whom Cohen testified signed some of the checks to pay back the hush money, and of course, the president himself, who seemed to be neck deep in the overall scheme to silence Daniels. And according to FBI reports, a number of other figures, Keith Davidson, Daniel's first attorney, David Pecker and Dylan Howard of AMI, and Hope Hicks had all spoken to Cohen during the time he was setting up the payments, so could have anticipated at least being caught up in the probe as witnesses. The investigation thus seems to have come to an end, not with a bang but a whimper, with quite a lot of effort expended and only Cohen's convictions to show for it. That happens. Investigative possibilities fail to bear fruit or peter out. And it's also still conceivable that the office has preserved a conspiracy case against President Trump to consider bringing in 2021, when it would still be within the statute of limitations should Trump lose the election. On the other hand, it's public knowledge that the SDNY had sought to interview Trump Organization executives, but the prosecutors never followed up and the interviews never took place. That is pretty strange. The SDNY wouldn't normally begin to make overtures to interview someone and then just fold its hand. Some journalists have sought to tie the SDNY's decision to another event that occurred about a month after the office sought the AMI interviews, the confirmation of Bill Barr as Attorney General. Is it possible that Barr already has brought SDNY to heel? Right now, we don't know. And my personal inclination is that we should assume regularity of conduct from within DOJ absent evidence to the contrary, meaning here that the prosecutors decided they just didn't have more charges to bring. But the bottom line is that one more risk to Trump that seemed grave when SDNY was working the case in full force has somehow dried up and gone away. Thank you very much to Mimi, Jen, and Ellie And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Matthew Flanagan. Thanks to Ben Elman at the Radio Arts Studio on the New York's Upper West Side. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Special thanks to Michael Kay, who provided us our sidebar today. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.